<laughs> yes. You just got to listen. That's right. No whiteboard today. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. We're going to come back. So please open up your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 17 to 29. So John chapter 5, verses 17 to 29. Yes, any uh, comments from the audience? Oh, okay. <laughs> One of the things that was uh, we've kind of lost today but was much more popular in medieval times was a concept called knighthood. Knighthood, being a knight. Yes, knights. It, it, no, it's still a thing, but it's not as prevalent today. Uh, and one of the things, particularly in its height in medieval times, that was really important really was who you were and that you had to be authorized to be it. So in its height, to become a knight was a mixture of those two things. You had to be born to an important family, so you couldn't just be anyone. You had to be born to an important family. It required training from childhood, money, so you needed wealth, uh, money for weapons, horses, you needed a squire. How cool would that be? You had to know the rules of chivalry. Uh, and so starting as early as seven years old, for over a decade-long process, you would train for this hopeful idea of becoming a knight. But even after you've proven yourself through qualifications and wanting to enjoy the status of knight, you could not just be a knight. You had to be dubbed. Have you guys ever seen a dubbing? Yeah. Yeah. Ah, do you know what happens when you're dubbed? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. So, so, so even if... Even if you have all the right things, you've been born to the right family, you've been trained, you are the person for the job, you still need to be authorized for it. You have to be dubbed by a king or a lord. So someone with the authority to give you the authority to be a knight. And this is important because if it was found out that you were only pretending to be a knight, you could face imprisonment or worse, be beheaded. So there are real consequences for pretending to be a knight. And again, that's because it meant something to be a knight. It represented who you were, where you came from, and it meant enjoying the benefits of having land, money, authority, prestige, and honor. And so as we come to John chapter 5, this is a concept we're seeing happen, unfold right before us. Jesus this morning, as we read these words, this monologue that he is beginning, he will give us one of the clearest proclamations of his identity and the authority that's been affirmed in him by God. Claims that if are untrue by Hebrew law, should have Jesus killed. But if these things are true, if Jesus, what we're going to read, is saying the thing, these things and they are true, then honor, obedience, and trust are owed to him. And so we're dealt and confronted with this question, how will we deal with these claims Jesus puts before us? How will we deal with a Jesus who doesn't simply want our approval or listening ears, but total trust, obedience, and to view him as he is God? As we consider answering that question for ourselves, let me tell you what I think John, the author, hopes for us. I think he would hope that we, as we read this text, would honor Jesus, who is equal with the Father, and has been authorized by him to bring life 
and judgment. So let's read John 5, 17 through 29. This is the word of the Lord. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we pray you'd give us ears to hear what you were saying by your Spirit, that I would decrease and that Christ would increase exponentially. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so we're venturing back into the Gospel of John, uh, where we had just seen Jesus demonstrate the third of seven specific signs noted by our author John. Right? These signs were meant to convey, to help people understand the identity and the purpose of Jesus' coming. And so we saw the healing of a lame man on the Sabbath. And as we learned, as you might know, the healing, healing done on the Sabbath was considered wrong. Because though not stated in the Bible, what had happened uh, through the pharisaical rule is that they had created a system of laws, of rules, trying to be holy, trying to bring clarity to what it meant to be holy where God had not specified. And so one of those things was healing on the Sabbath. And so Jesus' work doesn't go unnoticed, and that's kind of the point we learned. The Pharisees find out that Jesus had, in their eyes, committed a sin, and they come after him. And so out of their confrontation of Jesus, we see a monologue. Jesus gives us a very clear claim to who he is and what that means for us. That his identity is not just of a, a man, a prophet, or a teacher, 
But he is, in fact, one of the persons in the Trinity. And in being a person in the Trinity, he also has been given a, a divine authority over some essential things. Life and final say. In some ways, it doesn't get clearer than what we will read, what we've read in John 5. Jesus will directly address the Pharisees' issues with his work by pointing to his divine nature and authority. And so we'll see in verses 17 to 24, the call to honor Jesus, the Son of God. And in verses 25 through 29, listen to his voice. He's authorized by the Father to have life in himself and bring judgment. So let's look at verses 17 to 24. Honor Jesus, the Son of God. Last week, we would have ended in verse 16. And we read there, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Right? And we learned that these things were miracles, signs that Jesus was d doing to demonstrate his power, his identity. And specifically, that was the healing of a man who had been lame for almost four decades, 40 years. So when you move into verse 17, we see this as a response from Jesus to their confrontation. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. My Father, God, is never not working, which is why you see me doing what I'm doing. What, what, is, what does this mean? I think verse 18 gives us some more clarity to see what Jesus is getting at here. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Pop quiz, I have a question. Is God ever not working? Oh, we have a hand raised. Okay, you tell me. <laughs> that was a great non-answer well i i really appreciate you <laughs> said a lot so so i'm he's gonna tell you what he said after i'll summarize what he said in a second look cody great question that's a great question. He has to. Sarah? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what is the... Yes and no. Okay, so what is the first sentence of question two in the New City Catechism? What is God? What is the very first sentence? What does it mean to sustain something? Keeps it going. So after God created, what did he do? So when we read, because you're referencing Genesis 2, Will, which is good, right? Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. So when God rests on the seventh day, did he stop sustaining creation? 
Yes, yes. So you're right. God never stops working. So obviously when we think about rest, we have to think about that a little bit differently because God never stops sustaining. Because if God stops sustaining, right, we, <laughs> we would cease to exist, right? For a moment, let alone a day, every week God said on Sundays, I'm not doing nothing, right? It'd be like resetting your game once a week, which would be horrible. You're, you know, your save file, resetting that every single week, right, and starting all over. That's what God would be doing if he ceased from work. And Jewish people would have agreed with that idea. They would have understood that God's resting on Sabbath wasn't a rest from every kind of work, but a rest of the work of creating. Because what he had made was perfectly good. It was done. And so when we see Jesus making this claim that as the Father works, I must work, he is saying something important. That the rules that apply to you, right, when you get to question uh, 10 of the New City Catechism, we're asked what are the fourth and fifth commandments, one of them being Sabbath. And what we're told is, in part, Sabbath is rest from routine, in, uh, routine work, routine employment, regular work, doing the things that help sustain your life, that we stop doing that. But God doesn't stop doing that. Because if he stops, we all stop. And so Jesus is saying some pretty weighty things when he says, as the Father can't stop because he's God, I must keep on working as well. Implied in there is divinity. Explicitly what's being heard by the Jews is, wait a minute, you're saying you're God. But Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why, in verse 18, the Jews want to kill Jesus. Because he's making a claim to be equal with God. To even call God his personal, singular, my father, even as my father is working, would have been something you didn't do. You could refer to our father, but to say my father, again, is elevating yourself to be equal with Yahweh, equal with God. So Jesus is telling all within earshot, and even us now, that Sabbath's rules do apply, but they apply to creation, not the Creator. And I am the Creator. His healing on the Sabbath wasn't an improper use of God's power, but in fact, God Himself acting on the Sabbath He established. This means, as we learn in other Gospels, that Jesus is even Lord on the Sabbath. At times, when we hear people, um, belief systems or opinions around Jesus, we'll hear that Jesus never explicitly said he was God. And often that comes from not reading the text for what it's meant to be, ignoring its context, ignoring the rules of engagement, and not allowing the Bible to speak for itself. The Jews are clearly antagonistic to Jesus' words here. So Jesus doesn't say, I am God. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. But contextually, what this means is, I am God. This is what they heard. This is why they desire to kill Jesus. That in defending his work on the Sabbath, he is simply following the example of the father. The Jews would know what the implications of that meant. And Jesus wasn't dumb. He understood the weight of the words he chose. He is intentionally bringing clarity to who he is, which invites us to either worship him 
or in the case of the Pharisees, invites anger and animosity from those who don't believe he is who he says he is. But Jesus is not finished here. He, he's established equality with God, meaning that he's claimed to be God. But he goes on to continue to explain the relationship between him and the Father. That though he is God, there is a distinction between him and the Father, something we have come to understand as the Trinity. That God is one essence, one essence, but found known in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Part of what makes them distinct or different from one another is their relationship to each other. And so we learn a little bit about that here. Let's look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Truly, truly. So these are facts. He's saying, listen to the truth of what I'm saying. The Son is so aligned with the will of the Father that when he moves, I move. Just like that. No, yeah, a, that was the idea, Sarah. Thank you. Reading this verse, though, might have you thinking certain thoughts. Jesus sounds like a child, utterly dependent and limited. But I think Jesus is trying to emphasize a couple of crucial things here. First, that again, the emphasis is not so much on what Jesus cannot do, but realizing that in God's limitless abilities, Jesus can do anything and all that the Father does. Think of John chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. God speaks creation. He, he speaks the Word. And we learn that the Word is Jesus. That Jesus is the agent of creation. He brings everything into existence. So the Father calls Him to create, and Jesus, because He is limitless in His power, creates. Second, we're not being told Jesus is powerless in his ability to choose what he wants to do, but that his will is in such perfect harmony with his father's. Think of two synchronized swimmers, right? Jumping off the platform, almost mirroring each other, that it, either one you're looking at, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. They're distinct, but because they are so in such harmony, it is like watching the same thing. This is what makes, in part, Jesus the perfect representation of God on earth. It's because he is perfectly obedient to the will and desires of the Father. Him and the Father have perfect unity so that their actions, wills, and purposes are in total agreement with each other. There's never any infighting. There's never a misunderstanding or confusion. Oh, I thought you meant this. No, that's not the stuff that often makes our friendships, our marriages, right, our co-workers hard to deal with. None of that exists between the relationship of Jesus and the Father. So again, this means that Jesus' work on the Sabbath isn't only made right by who he is, but it is within the perfect will of the Father. He's only doing as the Father has willed. For whatever the, the Father does, that the Son does likewise. I think in this is also what we talked about this past week in question six of the New City Catechism. How do we glorify God? 
right? By enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, but also obeying his will, commands, and law. Jesus is demonstrating in his life what we are called to live as we seek to glorify God. That our lives would be directed by hearts completely given to him in every way. That our desires, our plans, and our actions would be aligned with our Father in heaven, whose will we call for on earth. We read in verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Uh, Verse 20 brings us to one of the uh, most important dynamics displayed in the Trinity. Love. The Father's love for his Son. Understand that this is fundamental even to the gospel that we, we love and proclaim and hold on to. This good news message for the world that Jesus' death on the cross, the forgiveness of sins, belief in his name, understand that none of that happens if not for the love that existed in eternity past within the Trinity. The Trinity, in part, is so important to our faith because it means that God's love is not dependent on creation, but something core to who he is, something found within himself. Pure and perfect love exists because of the relational nature of the Trinity. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need you to know love. He doesn't need you to know what it is like to love, which is why we can experience perfect love from the Father because of his love for the Son. It is unmotivated by who we are or what we do by God for God because he himself is love. And that is because they are One being, three persons who experience within themselves perfect love. And here we see that the Father's love for His Son, Jesus, has Him showing, revealing His will, and working through Him. So that we would marvel, we would be amazed at the work of God. Verses 21 and 22 describe these greater works for us. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. What is being emphasized here is the claim is a claim to deity. The idea that the Son can give life to whom he will is a concept that has only been applied to Yahweh, to God. This is something only suited for God. So this is showing us that Jesus does what only God can do. The Old Testament makes clear the raising of the dead and giving of life are sole prerogatives of God. You can think of Deuteronomy 32-39. See, now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me, I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Hannah We'll say the same thing in 1 Samuel 2.6. You can think of Israel's king in, um, in first, Second Kings chapter 5, verse 7. Naaman, uh, an uh, officer general in Syria, comes to look for healing. And the king says, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Healing, life, death, those are things that only God has control over. The right to life is God's. 
And Jesus is saying, and that means it's mine as well. And the same can be said of judgment. Verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Again, this is exclusively a role given to God. Genesis 18.25 No, that's good. Far be it for you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge, God, of all the earth do what is just? Judges 11.27 I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. These great works, we're told in verse 20, the giving of life, the act of judge, both point to an elevated status. They point to a divine status. One that has Jesus equal with God, and that is to cause us marvel and amazement. But our awe is not the end-all be-all. There's a goal at the other side of that awe that is called for all of us. There is a purpose in the works displayed by God through His Son, Jesus. Verse 23, But all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. These greater works have a goal set by God that all people, every one of us, would look at the Son and honor Him just as we honor the Father. Again, the words here are explosive to the ears of Jesus' listeners. They would have been de deeply felt because he's saying, as you worship God, you should worship me. And again, there's distinction here. Jesus is not saying, when he says just as, that I am the Father. He's not saying that. He's saying, I am distinct from my Father, but we are both God. Again, this question three of our New City Catechism, how many persons are there in God? Right? We, we learn that there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're the same in substance, equal in what? In glory. Yeah. And so if they're equal in power and glory, all three are owed worship. They are owed our devotion. And so we worship the Son not as the Father, but in the same way, with the same reverence, allegiance, love, and awe, we are meant to give our Father in heaven because they are equal in power and glory and equally deserving of our worship. And Jesus says this means that if you, if you don't honor the Son, if you don't worship me, Really, you are not honoring the Father. You can't bypass Jesus to get to God. Any belief that diminishes who Jesus is is doing that to our Father. It's doing that to God. This applies to the Muslim faith. This applies to Jehovah's Witnesses. This applies to any form of Arianism that, that says that Jesus is a creature. Any belief that diminishes Jesus from who he actually is, God in the flesh is dishonoring our Father in heaven. This is also, I think, a personal call for all of us to check our worship of Jesus. 
the Son of God? Do we honor him? I think we can do this in a couple of ways. We honor Jesus by knowing more about him, right? We can only grow in our affection for Jesus as we continue to spend time with him. So this, don't hear this as simply intellectual exercise. Though it's not less than that, we are to grow in our knowledge, but in our time with the Lord. It is in the revelation of Jesus to us that we're able to properly worship him. You cannot worship what you do not know. And so we avoid complacency when we continually refresh our mind and our memories because we forget the things we learn about him. When we continually remind and learn of his beauty, of his greatness, of his love. So don't let anyone trick you into thinking that you can spend too much time with Christ. That you spend too much time in prayer. That you can spend too much time in, in the word. Now, your posture matters. So how you do that will affect what you can gain from that. But going to the Lord with a desire to know about him is what you are created to do. So we should do it. We should go to the Jesus who is God in the flesh, that we might more fully enjoy his perfection. But grasping his deity is not enough. As Jesus has revealed who he is, there's a call to treat him as he is. Jesus has already exampled to us what it means in his allegiance to God and doing all that the Father wills. But in the same way, Jesus submits to the Father. We, the church, Jesus' bride, are called to submit to him, to, to live as he calls us to live, to do everything he has taught us. If Jesus is God, then we should take seriously that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to God and to our Savior. Good for you guys. And in part, this is because Jesus has given us eternal life. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus' identity is crucial because in the truth of who he is, we can have eternal life right now. We are given a choice. Will we believe Jesus' claims? And if we do, we're told that on the other side of faith is everlasting life. That we don't experience judgment, but we are passed from death to life. We saw in John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What we learn here is that what's being confirmed is we're spiritually dead. Walking already towards judgment. Because we live lives contrary to the perfection and goodness of God. Belief in Jesus sees a reversal in the direction we are going. The script is flipped and now we pass not into death but into life. The hour has come for spiritual life through the Holy Spirit, and God has sent Jesus, he's given him the authority to grant life and to bring judgment to those who ignore the call of his voice. This is what's seen in verses 25 
to 29. Listen to his voice. In him is life, and through him comes judgment. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 25 sounds familiar because it almost repeats word for word what we saw in verse 24. But what is new and old here is a familiar phrase we've seen already in the Gospel of John. An hour is coming and is now here. Often pointing again to the life, ministry, and ultimately death of Jesus, the idea of the hour points us to an eschatological uh, truth, a reality that points to Jesus. That his death, his ministry, his life is starting a new age. That God's plan set before the foundation of the world is right before our eyes, breaking into space and time and unfolding in front of us. We're seeing God's plan come to fruition. And what will we see? The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. But this is not just connected to the spiritual realities we see in verse 24. It's also everlasting physical life that we will see pointed out in verse 29. That this life is both new life given to those who believe, but also resurrected life, the second coming of Christ that will bring all of us to the throne. This is why Jesus says both the hour is coming and is now here. Because eternity can be experienced now and will be fully known later. So, believe the voice of Jesus. By the power vested in me, by the state of Rhode Island, in the presence of God, and the witnesses of friends and family, I now pronounce you husband and wife. So, in a couple of months, I will be saying those words as I announce Jeff and Zoe as husband and wife. But if you notice, we, yeah, yay. But if you notice, one of the things I have to say in saying that is in the power vested in me. On my own, I have no authority to do that. I can't just decide they're married. I have to be acknowledged if they want to be acknowledged by the state of Rhode Island. I also have to be acknowledged by Rhode Island, and they must vest in me an authority to marry them. It's the same idea for police officers, that when you're pulled over, stopped, arrested, what gives them the right to do this is not themselves, but an authority vested, given to them, symbolized by their badge. Verses 26 and 27 read similar to verse 21 and 22, but they emphasize different things. In the earlier two verses, the significance was the similarity between the Father and the Son, that Jesus is equal with the Father, he is God. Verse 26 and 27 emphasize the power and authority that rightfully is being exercised by the Son. So let's look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So how do we know verse 25 is true, that those who believe will have eternal life? Because God has authorized Jesus to have life in himself. Now, this is different than the examples I just gave to us around weddings and an officer. 
Because for Jesus to be God means he must have life in himself already. This is the idea of the aseity of God. Meaning God is self-sufficient. He depends on nothing else, nothing outside of him. So this means that all knowledge exists in God, so he doesn't learn. God doesn't learn anything. It means that all power exists in God, so God cannot become weaker or stronger. He is God. And so it also means that all life is in God, meaning life is in himself. He doesn't gain life, he doesn't lose life. He is life itself. So understand, when you hear God's granting to Jesus the authority to have life in himself, he's not saying, oh, now you have life as opposed to before. There was a state where you didn't. No, no. He is affirming. He's making an official statement affirming who Jesus is. We've already been told this in John 1, 4. In him was life. Jesus is affirmed as having life in himself, and he's authorized to bring judgment. Verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Now, you might read that and wonder, but I thought Jesus didn't come to judge. And you'd be right. If you remember John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But this is not a contradiction. Jesus' role as final judge does not oppose or contradict his purpose, his first purpose coming into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. God's judgment ultimately enacted through Jesus is not a contradiction of God's love for the world, but a necessary response to bring true justice on those who would reject his love displayed through the gift of his Son. But also, Jesus is pointing to a time that has not come yet. So he did first come not to condemn, but to save the world. But he's coming again. And when he comes the second time, he will come and bring judgment. Because we read, he is the Son of Man. Now this doesn't mean, it's not meant to conjure up images of Jesus the human, but it echoes Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Because Jesus is not only the divine Son of God, but also the Son of Man who was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so we see here that the Father has given him authority to carry out the final judgment of every human, because Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophesied Son of Man. This is meant to symbolize his complete power, glory, dominion, rule. So there's no way around Jesus. With life being found in him, judgment executed by him, there are no alternatives. Jesus is the only way to life, and he is the one you have to deal with if you decide not to believe in God. As Christians, hearing these words, I think should give us confidence 
in a world that feels and is so against God. In the Great Commission, Jesus will use these words around authority. Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This means that for us, we can trust that even when our personal lives or as a church is full of death, death of those we love, of comforts, that we have him who is the actual source of life. That when we experience injustice in this world personally, against those we love, when Satan schemes against us, that the final judge is going to deal with all of that. And that's Jesus. His words make clear that we should only feel the need to take marching orders from him. Jesus, the Son of Man, full of life, and the bringer of judgment. And this will climax in the final resurrection. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So God's cosmic plans will climax with creation's final roll call. Jesus will have everyone present, everyone will rise, dead or alive, and there will only be two kinds of resurrection to deal out. Life, judgment. How do you know which one you'll experience? Those who have done good will receive life. Those who have done evil, death. Now, if you've been paying attention to the Gospel of John, you may have noticed something I think is important as you read Jesus' words here. And that's that the Gospel doesn't present these ideas of doing good and doing evil like a fork in the road decision. Like, we're beginning in neutrality, there's a fork in the road, and you've got to choose. Are you going to do good or are you going to do bad? No. We come to Jesus' promise here knee-deep in the quicksand known as our evil deeds. How do we know? We've seen it already spelled out in the Gospel of John. right? When he says in verse 24, you've passed from death to life, that communicates that you're already in the state of something, that you're already dead. This is a picture of changing teams. We saw in John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. So must we then just decide from here on out, I'll just do good works, I've done some bad, but now I'll do good, enough that we might enjoy the resurrection of life? Well, if you go back a little further in the Gospel of John, we go back to his conversation with Nicodemus. They talk about entering the kingdom of God, which is where those who will enjoy eternal life will be. And Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 3 of chapter 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He fleshes that out a little bit more in verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So he's telling us right here that obtaining eternal life, the kingdom of God, can only happen through means that are outside of yourself. You must be born of the spirit, which basically means doing good things, having a change of I'm going to go from bad to good isn't going to cut it. Simply behaving morally now that you've read Jesus' words will not do what you think it will do. So what good can have us enjoy the resurrection of life? Unfortunately, what we just recited earlier today 
tells us that it would be personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to God. Which, I'm guessing, none of us can claim we've been able to do. But there's hope found in our text this morning. Or this afternoon, actually. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So interestingly, though we have failed to, to live out that verse, there is one who has not done that. One who has not failed to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love neighbor as himself, who has not run away from what God forbids, who has loved joyfully to do what God commands. Jesus has lived that out. Jesus, the Son of God, has worked in the perfect harmony we were called and created to do, which makes him perfectly righteous, which makes him good. This is why the resounding cry in the Gospel of John is, whoever hears my word and believes in him who was sent has eternal life. In and through Jesus, we have found the work to obtain eternal life. John 6.29 will tell us just as much. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. Through Jesus, who has life in Himself, you find life. When you draw near the source of life and believe in Him, Jesus' final judgment will not be a day of paying the debt you owe to God, but rejoicing in the finished and complete work of Jesus, whose life was given up for our sake. His perfect life, because the works that He has done, we can trust in. And in His death, the payment is complete, the judgment is past, and we can enjoy eternity with God. I think as we read these words, in John 5, 17-29, even think through this, my prayer, my hope, is that we would actually think about how this reality of God's grace, of Jesus' identity, is meant to shape the way our life looks. That Jesus, God in the flesh, has poured out his life for you. How does that shape the way you anticipate the final resurrection? Does it give you hope? Does it give you gratitude? As those who've passed from death to life, who've made the ultimate transition you can make, what is distinguishing your life from those still knee-deep in their sin? As we recognize who our King is in Christ, are we continuing to listen to His voice? Have we heard His voice, believed Him, only then to be lackadaisical, hear like James talks about his words, look in the mirror and forget as soon as we walk away? But are we continually daily allowing his identity and authority to shape the way we live our lives? Jesus has made clear who he is and who has affirmed his authority. The message has been crystallized for us. We are called to honor Jesus, who is equal with the Father, the Son of God, we're to look and listen to the voice of the one authorized to bring life and judgment. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that that you'd help us, you'd help these things to really do a work in our souls, a needed one. We can, we can just grow so apathetic to who you are, Jesus. You are God. You are the bringer of life. You are the bringer of judgment. These are weighty things. These are, these are ideas and concepts that are not real enough for us. So we pray that by your spirit, you would make them more real. That we might be in awe that this is the same Jesus who died for us, who rose for our sake. This Jesus, equal with the Father, who lords over life and judgment, he has called us to himself to be his bride. He has loved us so graciously, with unceasing mercy. And so we are called to honor you, Jesus. Help us to be a people who would rightly see you and rightly live in light of who you are. The Son of God, equal with the Father, authorized to bring life and judgment. In your name we pray. Amen.